Hey Valley Church, thanks for tuning in. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for just clicking wherever you clicked to be watching wherever you're watching. I want to remind you, if you're able to, at the end of our message today, we're going to be taking communion. So I just want to give you a few minutes to find some elements, some bread, some juice, and uh, celebrate Jesus. Uh, we'll do that at the end of our, our message. Um, I don't know about you, if you've taken a summer vacation yet, I just got back. My family and I, we took summer vacation to Washington, D.C. this year. I don't know if you've ever been there, but it was a fantastic trip if you love history and if you love expensive food. It was so expensive. It was unreasonably expensive, uh, but it's okay because the trip was amazing. My family loved all of the sightseeing and all of the museums. It, it was incredibly hot, but the walking wasn't so bad because there was so much to see. Like we went to the Bible Museum. It was incredible. I mean, like five stories of Bible history. Uh, and somebody said it actually takes, if you go through every single display, reading everything, it takes you like 72 hours to get through it. But what I want you to know is your pastor is advanced. I was able to get through that building in three hours. And, uh, uh, but it was still, it was so good. Not just the Bible Museum. We went to the Library of Congress. We got to see the most pristine Gutenberg Bible that is, uh, that is out today. And it was behind like glass and in a gas chamber to keep all of this, uh, this masterpiece uh, in, in good condition. They flipped the page. I don't remember how many days, but like every two or three days they flip one page. And uh, right now they're currently in the book of Revelation. It was kind of cool. Uh, one of the cool things about the Gutenberg Bible, if you don't know this, like this is a Bible that's like 500 years old. Um, and the movable type that was put in place to print these Bibles was revolutionary because uh, what a scribe could do in 18 months to two years was handwrite one scripture from beginning to end where the Gutenberg Bible uh, printed like 180 Bibles in that same time. It was fantastic for the church and people who love Jesus, uh, especially if you could read Latin. But it wasn't just like uh, uh, Bible history. We got to see American history. We were able to see statues and museums. We saw politicians and political buildings and, and memorials and monuments. I mean, it was fantastic. And I got to remind you, all the walking, tens of thousands of steps, and I monitored it all right here on my Apple Watch. And we stopped a lot for ices and ice cream cream, uh, but it was all worth it. It was worth it spending a week in our nation's capital. It's such a rich history of how our nation began. There was so much to see, so much to read, so much to hear, so much tragedy to understand and to see all of the success of our history. Uh, it was, it was uh, definitely a place worth going and there was so much worth remembering. And while the United States of America is, is incredible, I mean, we have an incredible story of how our nation came to be where it is today. So many accomplishments, so much success, so much failure. All of this, even though it is incredible, it's all going to pass away one day. It's all going to be gone. And you and I, we're not going to give it a second thought. Look at this from the prophet Isaiah. He says in Isaiah 65 verse 17, Look, I am creating a new heaven and a new earth. And, and no one will even think about the old ones anymore. God has given the prophet Isaiah this vision and he is just reminding all of us something new is coming. Something new, something better, something greater. The prophet Isaiah is seeing that Jesus is king over all. That when everything is new, his kingdom will be here and he will be reigning. And what God has next, it's just so good 
that we're not even going to think about all that we have had, all that we have right now, or, or all that we've ever wanted in this life. Nothing compares to what's coming. Uh, God is going to usher in something amazing, and uh, it's going to be new, and we're not going to think about today. In fact, the five verses that we're going to look at today talk about that future. Like if you have your Bibles, if you have a scripture journal with, with you, if you have your YouVersion Bible, at flip over or click over to Revelation chapter 11. We're going to start in verse 15. And like I said, we're going to go through five verses. Uh, you might remember chapters 8 and 9 uh, took us through these trumpet judgments. And, and it started off saying there's these seven angels with these seven trumpets. But in those two chapters, God only gave John a vision for the first six trumpets. Uh, and you might remember the first four trumpets had everything to do with what was happening to the earth. And the last three trumpets were uh, things that were going to happen to those who dwell on the earth. And so here in verse 15 of Revelation chapter 11, that seventh and final trumpet is blown. And here's what scripture says. The seventh angel blew his trumpet and there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. And and he will reign forever and ever. I love this. The king has come in this vision that John has. He has come to claim his territory and he has come to claim his people. You know, Pastor Quentin has said that uh, uh, Revelation isn't like painting a picture that is in chronological order. Like he, John is just writing the visions that God is giving him. And here it, it, we're just kind of panning out. God is allowing John to see this end picture, but the end isn't isn't happening right here in the text. It's just showing John that victory has already been won. It's inevitable. What is coming is amazing. He's just getting to pan out and see the end of the story. You've been at a movie, right, where you're on the edge of your seat because so many amazing things are happening. Like you're watching all of the action and you're like, this is the end of the movie. And all of a sudden it just fades to black. And text pops up on the screen and it just says three months earlier. You kind of got to see the end of the movie, but we get into what's happening. And actually, Pastor Quentin is going to jump back into what's coming next week to what gets us to the point of what John is seeing here. What we see in verse 15 and what the elders say shows us, and if you're taking notes, I'd love it if you'd write this down. You and I, we can face the future with confidence. We already know the end of the story. We can face the future with confidence. The battle has been won. The winner has been predetermined. We already know the end of the story and the beginning of eternity has Jesus on the throne. Jesus wins. Uh, the Old Testament has been pointing to the coming Messiah, the one who will defeat death and sin and have, have victory over the ruler of this world. And Revelation 11 is a picture of that in action. And, and we hear that there's, there's this voice. These voices are, are shouting. They're, they're, they're declaring. They're voices of acclamation. And we don't really know who the voices are, but what they are declaring is the fulfillment of what the church has been praying for centuries. I don't know if you've ever thought about it this way, but, but what's happening at the end of time is what the church has been praying for. You might remember Jesus teaching us how to pray in Matthew chapter 6. And we, we know it as the Lord's Prayer. And Jesus says, when you pray, pray like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us 
from the evil one. This is what's happening in the text today. The seventh trumpet shows us that God is answering prayers in his time. The seventh trumpet shows us a time when, when the kingdom has fully and finally arrived. It's, it's a time after he has delivered us from the evil one. Jesus is king. He is king now and he will be reigning forever and ever with his church. The church. You know, while other movements vanish, the church endures. Uh, there are countless institutions and empires and dynasties, global companies, tech startups that have been uh, tech giants that have ruled their field, but they're just gone from today. They're gone from today's landscape. The Persian Empire, gone. Uh, Roman Empire, gone. The Ottoman Empire, gone. Uh, billion dollar corporations that we thought would be around forever, like Standard Oil in Texaco, Eastern Airline, Blockbuster, gone, gone, gone. They're all gone. Even Toys R Us is gone. I remember it broke so many people's hearts. This picture actually hit the internet and it made people so sad. Look at Jeffrey, the giraffe, the Toys R Us. He's like, it's gone. Who thought Toys R Us would go? Who would have thought those institutions with thousands of employees and billions of dollars in assets would just evaporate? But they did. They're all gone. And while other movements vanish, the church endures. Who's the church? Who, right? Uh, the church isn't a what. The church is a who. The church is made up of people who are following Jesus. You're the church. I'm the church. Uh, if you have kids and they love Jesus, they are not the future of the church. They are the church of today. God has a plan for them. God has a purpose for them. And he wants to use us to reach people who are not yet following him. And the church, the church isn't up on the shoulders of professors and pastors or scholars and theologians. The church is made up of ordinary everyday people like you and me. Uh, one of my favorite verses. It's one of my favorite verses. You just write this down. If you haven't written anything else down, write this verse down. Acts 4.13. When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished. And they took note that these men had been with Jesus. Just regular, everyday, ordinary, unschooled men were amazing. Do you know why? Because they spent time with Jesus. The kingdom of God grows with the work of ordinary people. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you and I can face the future with confidence. So after this declaration that God's kingdom has come, we see the elders, they're back. The 24 elders who were seated before God on their thrones, they got off of their thrones. They, they fell face down and they worshiped God. They just, they just jumped out of their chairs. You might remember that they were around God, taking their crowns, putting him at his feet and worshiping him. And here, at the end of all ends, they're like, well, how can we do anything else but worship God? You know, I think sometimes we complicate worship. We think we have to have a certain recipe in order for it to be worship, or we have to have certain things or do things a certain way. And you kind of do. I mean, we want to worship with reverence, but let's not complicate worship. They just fell face down. That posture presents not only a now thing, but it presents a reverence. And sometimes the best worship that you and I could ever do would be to just stop what we're doing, drop to our knees, and start praying. Stop, drop, and pray, 
is a great way to worship God. And here's what they were saying. We give you thanks, Lord God, the Almighty, who is and who was, because you have taken your great power and you have begun to reign. I love this. Like, like this is a declaration that God's kingdom has come before his kingdom has actually come. You know, they're giving thanks for something that has not yet happened, but they are confident that it will. You know, the declaration and praise is an expression of thanks. They are, they are thanking God in advance for what he's about to do, what they know he will do. And if you don't do this, if this isn't a part of your life, I just want to encourage you to do that. Start praising God for things that you know are to come. Celebrate that. That's, that's a display of your faith. Start praising God not only for the things that have happened, but the things that you know he promised you will happen. You know, uh, it, it's, it's a discipline in life to say, God, I trust you in this. Uh, uh, praise him for who he is, but also praise him for what you know he has promised to do. You know, it doesn't actually take much faith to thank God for something that he's already done. That's not a, necessarily a display of faith. Uh, one of the ways we show God that we have faith is that we thank him for breakthroughs before they happen in our lives. We thank him in advance. If you're a note taker, I'd love it if you'd write this down. If you thank God after there's a breakthrough, that's actually called gratitude. And that's a good thing. We all want to be thankful. We all want to show gratitude. But when you thank him in advance, that's a display of faith. Both of these things are very good things and should be a regular part of our faith and how we talk to God and how we celebrate God. There, there is so much that has happened in our lives that, that we can give thanks for. And there is so much in our lives that we should be anticipating. And we should give God thanks for that too. There's so much to hope for that right now we can give thanks and declare how good God is. I love it. Uh, let's go back to uh, this passage because this is really interesting to me. Who, who is and who was. There's something missing from what we're normally used to in kind of thinking of God past, present, future, right? From, from Hebrews chapter 13, verse 8, it's like we know that Jesus was the same yesterday, today, and forever. Yesterday, today, and forever. But here it's just a today and yesterday. The forever isn't here. Do you know why? Because this is the forever. It's how faithful he was and how faithful he is because Eternity has begun, you know, and we give thanks because. We give thanks because not only of how great his mercy and his grace are, but, but we thank him because of his great power, because of his authority, and because of how he has invited us in. And he reigns. Jesus is king. He, he is king. He's a king like no other king. There is no rival for King Jesus. The kings and the kingdoms of this world are nothing compared to the Lord God Almighty. It's not even close. Look, look at verse 18. The nations were angry. As this is happening, when this happens, the, the nations, they're going to be angry. But your wrath, God, your wrath has come. And the time has come for the dead to be judged. This is a response to the prayer of the saints. Remember in chapter 6 when they said, how long, God? How long until you, and he's like, right now, the time has come. And, and to give the reward to your servants and prophets, to the saints and to those who fear your name, both small and great, and the time has come to destroy those 
who destroy the earth. Like, I love this, big things and small things. It doesn't doesn't matter uh, how big the things were in your life, they're not going to be forgotten. And it doesn't matter how small your faithfulness has been, it won't be overlooked. And the nations are angry. Why are they so angry? I mean, we see the elders, they're in awe, and they fall to their face and they worship him because God has come to rule. But the nations, those who actually want to rule, they want control, they're angry for the same reason, because God has come. He has come to take control. He has come to be the leader. And when God's kingdom comes, it is going to be a joyful celebration. For who? It's going to be a joyful celebration for the prophets and the servants and the saints and those who fear the Lord. The reward is great. The reward is eternal. The reward is an everlasting personal relationship with God in his full glory. And when his kingdom comes, and it has already come, but it is also yet to come. It has come, but it is not yet fully here yet. It will be glorious. And there will be no sin. There will be no pain. There will be no tears. The reward is better than any of us can truly imagine. But that which is good news for the saints and the prophets and the servants and those God fears, it's also, it's also absolutely tragic news for those who have rejected God's grace and they've rejected his mercy. Mercy and grace that he's extended freely to the world through the person of Jesus Christ. You know, God's wrath, it's going to be poured out. And, and the time has come to destroy those who destroy the earth. Here's a question. Some, somebody out there is thinking this. How can a God who is so good do something that seems so bad? This is a good question. I mean, uh, many people are asking this question. And one of the reasons people struggle with this question is because we don't really understand that God's wrath is good. Wrath doesn't seem good, right? I mean, it seems extreme. When, When we think of wrath, we think of anger, we think of lashing out, we think of destruction. And none of those things seem like good things and until there's something that needs to be gone when something needs to be gone and it's destroyed when it receives the wrath of whatever is getting rid of it it's a good thing that's what's happening here I don't know if you have you ever spilled something on your shirt I'm sure you have I've spilled something on my shirt and unless it's a tie-dye for a t-shirt you didn't like it you didn't want it you didn't need the stain it frustrated you a little bit Uh, my friend Dan he was a guy I worked with for many years like this guy he spilled stuff on him every single meal of his life and when I say every single meal I mean every single meal Like this guy, when he and I were out eating, he would just be eating and mayonnaise would just fall out of his sandwich onto his shirt. He'd be drinking and just, you know, some some kind of carbonated beverage would just drizzle on his collar and he would just go, come on! It was just, it shouldn't have been, but it was just so funny. And sometimes I'd be in my office and I knew he was in his office and I could just hear this faint, like screaming, but through the walls, come on! And it just made me laugh because I knew he was in his office and he was eating or he was drinking and inevitably he was going to spill something on him. It always happened. So what do you do with the dirty shirt when you, when you spill something on it? Most of the time what you do is just throw it in the dirty laundry with other clothes that need to be washed, right? And eventually it gets washed. And, and when it comes out of the wash, hopefully that shirt is the way it was when you bought it. Like that's the goal. That's what you want. And it makes sense, right? I mean, that's, that's how it was designed. That's how the washing machine was designed. Those dirt stains, uh, they, they get 
into the washing machine. The washing machine uh, agitates and, and the washing machine cleans and all the soaps and the detergents, they, they eradicate, they destroy, they get rid of whatever was not meant to be on your shirt. There's one shirt in our house, this is interesting, that, that for the longest time it never got washed. It wasn't mine. One of my kids had, had a t-shirt. It's this t-shirt right here actually. It's a collector's item. Uh, from famous YouTuber Mr. Beast, when he hit 40 million subscribers, he was selling these t-shirts and uh, he was autographing them all. And my son was like, I'm never going to wear it. I want that stain. I want that mark. I want that ink. It, he just wants it forever. And eventually he started washing it. And I'm not going to be able to show it to you, but you can faintly see his signature down here. But, but he didn't wear it for the longest time. He didn't want to wash it ever because he loved that ink stain. To him, it was uh, something to celebrate. He took pride in the fact that he had this autograph on this shirt. And the washing machine to that kid was his enemy. He didn't want that ink gone. And when God's wrath, when it doesn't feel good, could it be because there are things staining your life that you just don't want to remove? I mean, some of those stains, maybe we kind of like them. We, we, we want to keep them. You know, the reason that God's wrath is so good is because God's wrath is a solution to the sin in our world. That's what makes his wrath so good. His wrath exists to eradicate sin. Uh, you know, maybe, maybe there's sin in, in, in our life that, you know, it's not good, but we like it and we're told it's not good and it, it frustrates us. And when any kind of confrontation about that thing enters into our life, enters into the conversation, it doesn't feel good and, and we defend our position or maybe, maybe we justify why we do it or maybe we deny it or hide it. Maybe you just don't consider it to be sin. Things that God considers sin, if you don't think they're sin, that doesn't instantly magically make them not sin. Sin is sin. And God's wrath comes in to defeat sin. Ultimately, that's what God's wrath is going to do. It's going to eradicate sin. And you might notice I said God's wrath is a solution. There's actually one other solution. Jesus is a solution to the sin in our world. The measuring stick for how you and I will be judged, it's not our works. It's not how good we are. It's not how perfectly we follow the rules. Final judgment is based on how you and I relate to Jesus. Look at this from John chapter 5, verse 24. Jesus says, truly I tell you, anyone who hears my words and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not come under judgment, but has passed from death to life. Like this is good news. This is the good news. Jesus says that salvation comes through believing in him. Jesus is the author of life. He is the giver of life. Salvation doesn't come by, by perfectly obeying the law. You know, we see throughout uh, Scripture, and especially in the New Testament, Jews throughout history have been trying to be good enough. They've been trying to follow the law to perfection. And not only did they think that that was the measuring stick for their lives, they pushed that on everybody around them. They wanted to hold other people to that standard. They loved the, uh, the power that came with their self-appointed authority. And God never says, I need you to do this before you come to me. And we can't 
We can't work our way into salvation. You and I, we are all broken people. We are broken, we are messy, and we don't measure up. But Jesus sees you, and Jesus says, I can make you clean. Jesus says, it's my work on the cross that, that fills the gap where you and I, where we fall short. And no matter how messy our past is, no matter how messy our present is, God, he loves you. You know, we get to come to him messy. We don't have to clean up before we come to him. We get to come to God messy, but we don't stay that way. It's because of Jesus that whoever hears the words of Jesus and believes in them has eternal life. And whoever does not believe will experience God's wrath. Eternity, like your eternity, my eternity, it rests on how we respond to God's work in and through the person of Christ. And here's a scary reality, but also like a joyful sound is to know that God's wrath is real and God's grace is enough. God's wrath is coming, but through Jesus, we can find refuge and rescue. That's a good thing. Uh, God's wrath, it, it exists to get rid of sin, to crush sin. And scripture shows us over and over and over, like if you don't want to experience how much God loves you, ultimately you will experience how much he hates sin. You know, you can feel the tension uh, between how serious God's wrath is and how incredible God's grace is when we read Matthew chapter 26. And you might want to spend some time sometime this week just reading that whole chapter, but I just want to touch on a few verses, just a couple things. I mean, this, this was moments before Jesus would be arrested and receive punishment and scars and manipulation and persecution on the cross. And in Matthew 26, 38, Jesus says this. He says, I am grieved to the point of death. But I don't think that he was grieved because he knew he was going to be arrested. He wasn't, he wasn't like anxious about being placed on the cross and being crucified. Those are not good things. But I don't think he was like fearing the pain of the nails in, in his feet and in his wrists. But let me, let me read to you three verses. Just listen to these. Matthew chapter 26. I'm just going to read verses 39, 42, and 44. Jesus was in the garden and he fell face down and he prayed. This is what he prayed. My father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. But not as I will, but as you will. Jesus knew that there was a cup of something coming. What is that cup? He knew something was coming, but he's like, I, is there another way? Verse 42, a second time he went away and he prayed and he said, My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. God, is there another way? I'm going to be obedient to you, but if there's another way for me to experience what I'm about to experience, God, please. Verse 44, he went away again and he prayed a third time, saying the same thing once more. We see this cup. We see that, that he, he's going to be asked by his father, his heavenly father, to drink whatever's in the cup. And he's kind of like, this is so bad. Like, do I have to do this? Is there another way? What's in the cup? Whatever the Lord is asking him to take on is grieving Jesus so much that he says, I'm grieved to the point of death. And that cup, it's not the fear of being arrested. It's, it's not the pain of crucifixion. It's not the scene on the cross or the words from people shouting, passersby yelling. 
When we turn to the Old Testament and see in Isaiah chapter 51, there's talk about this cup. And we see in Jeremiah chapter 25, verse 15, Scripture says this, there was a cup filled with the wine of God's wrath. And as we look forward into the New Testament, even more forward than we are now in Revelation chapter 16, verse 19, we see that there's a cup filled with the wine of the fury of God's wrath. So in John chapter 19, verse 30, when Jesus said it is finished, he was talking about the cup. The cup with the wine of God's wrath. You know, Jesus' sacrifice on the cross, when he said it is finished, in that moment he fully and he finally satisfied the wrath of God for those who place their faith and trust in Christ. That's what Jesus does. And he knows that God's wrath is so incredibly terrifying that he was asking, is there another way? Because if I don't have to take this, if I don't have to bear this, don't make me. But he says, your will be done, not mine. Side note, when we talk about wrath, it's not really a motivator for people who are not yet following Jesus, right? I mean, it's not a great conversation opener. Hey, are you, are you, it sounds like you're going to hell. You're not making it. Uh, you're a terrible person. Like, you're going to experience God's wrath. Like, that's terrible, that's terrible conversational work. And I know uh, the truth of how scary God's wrath is has definitely changed people's life. But I think understanding how incredible God's wrath is should actually motivate you and me to be more active in how we share the good news with other people. It should motivate us, the church, to build bridges in our community for the sake of eternity. You know, we see how the disciples fought for people to understand who Jesus is and what he has done and what he offers. They literally died for that story, that message, that good news. Knowing that one day his kingdom will come and his wrath will be unleashed, it drove the disciples to win people to Christ. And, and what a boost of encouragement for those seven small churches in Revelation. That they know that they exist on purpose and for a purpose uh, in a world that feels like it's against them. And it is. And in Revelation 11 verse 19, it finishes up by saying this. Then the temple of God in heaven, it was opened. And the ark of his covenant, it appeared in his temple. And there were flashes of lightning, rumblings and peals of thunder, an earthquake and severe hail. You know, this is a reminder of God's special covenant with his people. You know, originally that covenant was made, there was a covenant made with God and the people of Israel. But now there is a new covenant. A covenant for all people of every nation who, who, who love and believe in the person and work of Jesus Christ. God will not fail to fulfill that promise. This promise of eternity for those who confess with their mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in their heart that God raised him from the dead. You know, the full glory of God is coming. The full glory of God is coming as well as a terrifying threat to all of his enemies. This is a kingdom like no other kingdom. What we see in Revelation chapter 11, 15 through 19, this is a kingdom like no other kingdom, a kingdom that Jesus is ushering in and a kingdom that is already here but not yet fully established. 
And from time to time, I, I, I heard different stories about kings when uh, I was in Washington, D.C. with my family. And I mean, th there's a rich history of royalty before the United States was founded. And uh, kings were fighting for land and territory, and the Revolutionary War was kind of part of that. And, um, you know, there's a story about uh, America, and, which is not a kingdom, by the way, because it's not ruled by a queen or a king, but it, it almost was. I don't know if you know this. Maybe you do because you're a history buff or, or maybe you remember some of these stories from elementary school, but, but George Washington was commander in chief of the, the Continental Army. And, and during the American Revolutionary War, people just loved his leadership. He was a good leader and he was such a great general. People loved him that they wanted him to lead them. And so uh, they, they had him become the first president. You know that. And he was such a good president that they wanted him uh, for a second term. And before his second term was up, he pre-decided that he was not going to run for a third term, that it wasn't good for the country. Actually, there were also rumors that this guy is such an amazing general. He's such a good leader. Let's make George Washington king of America. And, and George Washington, he never was officially offered. He crushed the rumors. He wanted to just go back to normal life and be a citizen. But the story of this got back to King George III in London, a guy that George Washington never met, but he did meet uh, his father. Um, it got back to George Washington III. He heard the news from America that George Washington was going to turn down the opportunity to become king of what would be the greatest nation in the world. Turning his back on the possibility of being king, denying a third term even, King George said this in response to hearing that. He says, if he does that, that would make George Washington the greatest man in the world. That makes George Washington pretty great. I mean, seriously, uh, you know, by human standards, the humility it would take, the self-awareness needed, uh, it would be profound. But when you and I, when we see all that Jesus has done for this world, there's, there's no one greater. There is no king better than King Jesus. Jesus left his throne in heaven uh, to be born uh, to, to be born in a manger, to live this perfect life, die a sacrificial death, something a king would never do for his people, and defeat sin and death through the resurrection. King Jesus fully and finally satisfies the wrath of God through his sacrifice. And here in Revelation chapter 11, he's back on his throne. He's back on the throne because Jesus is king. A king who will reign forever and ever. And while in Revelation eleven fifteen we see uh, a kingdom that has fully and finally come, we're not quite there yet. The kingdom has arrived because Jesus came to this earth once, but it does not fully arrive because he has not returned again. And we're going to celebrate not only a celebration for what Jesus has done on the cross, but anticipation for his return. The Apostle Paul says, on the night Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread and he broke it and he had given thanks. And he said, do this in remembrance of me whenever you eat this bread. And the same way after supper, he took the cup and he said, this, this cup represents my blood and my new covenant with you. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. And he says, for whenever you eat this bread and whenever you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he returns. So, wherever you are,
uh, I just encourage you to pause, uh, get your heart right. And uh, if you don't have communion elements, just sit there and praise and worship God. Stop, drop, pray, and uh, show your faithfulness and show your gratitude where you are. And if you have the elements, pray and take when you're ready. Lord, thanks for today. Thanks for your message. Thanks for scripture. Thanks so much that you know, we have access to you, that wrath is not the only way to eradicate sin, but we can invite Jesus into our life and he can pay the price that I owe, that anyone in humanity owes by confessing with their mouth that Jesus is Lord and believing in their heart that God raised him from the dead. Salvation is found in Christ and in Christ alone. And as believers take communion today, I just pray that you're honored and celebrated. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Take whenever you're ready. Love you guys.